the main message, I think, of Stoicism. You know, it's, it's not saying, you know, giving you an intellectual re regimen. It's not giving you a physical regimen, though he recommends things in both regards. But what, what Seneca and the Stoics are saying is that achieving a kind of emotional perspective and maturity uh, is the key to managing everything else in your life. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Trombley and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this conversation, I speak with the poet Dana Joya. The Stoic philosopher Seneca may be most well-known for his practical philosophical work. However, he was also a playwright. Dana Joya recently published his translation of Seneca's Hercules Furens, entitled Seneca, the Madness of Hercules. In addition to his poetic translation of the play, it has a fine critical introduction to Seneca, his life, work, and the influence he had on later figures like Shakespeare. So all that is the focus of the conversation today. However, we really talk about much more. The polymathic Tyler Callan once called Dana Joya an information billionaire, which seems like a apt description to me. He's written criticism, poetry, read more than nearly anyone, but also marketed Jello and led the National Endowments for the Arts. We discuss his story, Seneca, Stoicism, poetry, and art. Dana's wisdom and generosity shine throughout the conversation. Enjoy. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros, and today I have the honor of speaking with Dana Joya. Thanks for having me here. Well, it's a very manageable honor, I think, to speak to me. I'm glad to, I'm glad to meet you, and I think you should have fun talking. Yeah, so you recently translated Seneca's Hercules Furens, which, which we'll get into. But before we do that, uh, let's start with a really broad question. What's your story? I, um, I think the best way to describe my rather unusual career is to say that I'm a working class guy from L.A., my dad was Sicilian, my mom was Mexican. I was the first person in my family to go to college. I knew from a pretty early age that I wanted to be somehow involved in the arts, but I didn't know what that meant. I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't know anybody that didn't have a manual labor job or a kind of low-level service job. And so it was a largely a fantasy life that I had. And so I was a musician when I was really uh, old. I, started learning piano in, in parochial school. In high school, I played piano, saxophone, clarinet. Uh, when I went to college, I went to Stanford, uh, I decided I was gonna be a composer. Then when I was about just shy of 20, uh, I simply woke up one day and realized that I would be a poet. Now, I, it sounds odd, uh, it sounds pretentious, but somehow my unconscious had sort of that through. I always liked poetry. I, like everybody else, I'd written a lot of bad poems, but I understood that that's what I wanted to do. And I had no idea what it meant. So the rest of my life has been figuring out what does it mean to be a poet? 
how does a poet make his way through life and how do you pay the bills? Because uh, I knew I wanted to get married. I wanted to have, you know, a family. And so I went to graduate school first because I'm a poet. You should be a professor. That's, isn't that the conventional thing? And I went to Harvard Graduate School. I liked graduate school. I liked Harvard in most respects. It's a bit snobbish. Uh, you know, and uh, I can say that because I went there, but I do think it's people at Harvard are very, uh, are a little too proud of the fact that they are at Harvard. But nonetheless, it's a superb school. I had a good mm -hmm. time, time there. But I realized after a couple of years that being a professor was very different from being a writer. And that the longer I stayed at Harvard, actually worse I would be as a poet because I'd be writing poems too self-consciously. I'd be writing poems to be analyzed rather than this weird kind of communication, which is the way poetry works. We can talk about that in a little while. So I, I decided to quit. I'd had jobs, believe it or not, since the age of nine. And so I had no illusions about having a, a shit job somewhere and, you know, writing at night or, you know, working as a night watchman or whatever. I wanted a good job. So I went to Stanford Business School because I was always pretty good at running things. Um, I uh, went to Stanford Business School and I'm probably the only person in history who went there to be a poet. I did the minimum uh, amount of work. I mean, no one has graduated doing less at Stanford Business School than I did, but I achieved three really good things. I got an MBA, uh, and I learned a lot. I mean, it wasn't like it was a worthless thing. It's just that I wasn't, I'd always been an A student. Mm -hmm. And Stanford Business School, I allowed myself to be the worst student in the classroom than the best sure. student. And that was a, in itself an education. You know, I realized how most people go through school. You know, they're not that engaged. I took a lot of that time, and I spent uh, about three hours every day writing or reading. And so I started... Uh, publishing and matured myself a little bit as a writer, but most importantly, I met the woman I married. I would marry. Uh, I knew that I would marry her within a few weeks of knowing her. It took her five years to uh, to recognize the, my rationale, uh, but we've been married now for 43 years. And so I then went to New York. I was in business for fi 15 years. I was working at General Foods Corporation, which was the largest food company in, in the country at that point. And I worked about 10 hours a day, and I came home and I wrote at night. And uh, after a number of years, I was uh, successful in business, but I was also a very well-known poet and critic. Um, I had a number of things happen in my life. The most significant one was that my first son died suddenly. Uh, he was four months old. He died of sudden death syndrome. Uh, and anyone who has lost a child or is in a family where they've lost a child knows the trauma that that represents. And as we were coming out of that, and we had two more sons, uh, I realized that, uh, and this sounds very Seneca, you know, I recognized mortality as a force in my life. And, you know, you only have one chance to be in this world, even if you believe in another world. And I felt that if I was going to be a full-time writer now, it was the time to do it. So I simply quit my job one day uh, to everybody's astonishment. I didn't have another job. And I decided that I would make my living as a writer. I was lucky because I had published an article 
called Can Poetry Matter? I don't know mm-hmm. if, you, if you've read it, Carol, but it's probably, it was published in 1991. It's probably still the most famous uh, American article on poetry in the last 30, you know, 30 plus years. And it made me internationally famous. And so I felt that gave me an opportunity to make a living. And that's what I did. I worked for the BBC. I reviewed for the New York Times, the Washington Post. I began editing anthologies. Uh, I began doing a lot of stuff as a, as a writer. And, and we had a couple of lean years, but then it began to work. I would have probably done that for the rest of my life. In the same way, I might have actually worked in business and written at night until retirement had I not lost my son, had I not had that basic existential mm-hmm. shock. Uh, I came back to California because still I was in New York for 15, nearly 20 years. Came back to California, which is where I'm from, and where I really feel uh, a very deep connection. Uh, much more than most people, I think, do towards place. But I'm, I've never thought of myself as anything but California or where, matter where I was living. And then at the age of uh, 50, I uh, ended up taking a job I did not want, um, but I did out of a certain uh, public obligation. I became the chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, which was a failed institution it was uh, Congress was trying to eliminate. And so I went to Washington to save the NEA. And I'm happy to say I, I managed. We, we uh, rebuilt the institution. We got the budget raised every year that I was there. We launched its largest programs uh, and most successful programs in its history. And I could have then once again stayed in Washington the rest of my life. I had many, many people in Washington that wanted me to continue there, but I came back to California. Uh, I had to teach part-time for a couple of years at the University of Southern California because I had two kids, two sons right, right. in college. And, uh, also, when you're in public service, you, you know, you really lose, you, you lose money. I didn't want to sell my house here. And so I came back and, and I, I did it. And then I had a, a stroke of very good fortune. Uh, once again, it wouldn't have happened otherwise, uh, which is that I, uh, Governor Brown asked me to be California Poet State Laureate. And I did that for uh, uh, four years. And uh, I became the only poet laureate in California's history who visited all 58 counties of the state and did events in all 58 counties, which was a kind of adventure. It was uh, my wife and I turned it into a kind of uh, interesting odyssey. And it was, you know, we did it together. And then uh, I left. USC. Now that was I paid the bills. I, I walked away from a university chair. I was thinking, but I was nuts. Right. But uh, that's a whole other subject. But it was I wasn't what my destiny was, and I came back here just in time for a fire to practically burn my house down and destroy my neighbors. So during the pandemic, while everybody else was in complete isolation, I was had people here every day, and we were cutting down burned trees, and we were. Uh, rebuilding things. So for two years, we rebuilt this. Then I had a broken pipe that flooded the room we were in. This room was gutted nine months ago and had to be rebuilt. So in my retirement, rather than writing full-time, which I had hoped, I'd become a kind of second-rate contractor. Uh, <laughs> but I actually, during that time, I, I finished a couple of books. And so so what's my story? My story is that I'm a, uh, a kid who 
was excited by art, was excited by literature, was excited by music, but I didn't know what they were, except his experiences. And I let that, in a sense, guide me into a life in which I, would, I worked in academics, in business, in government, uh, in the media, and most importantly, as an independent writer working only for myself. Mm -hmm. And so I had an unusual life. It's uh, instead difficult in a lot of ways, but uh, uh, I can't imagine uh, not uh, thinking of myself as blessed when I'm able to do what I love and I'm able to make a living with that. Mm -hmm. So uh, so there's a, a saying that Seneca made. Uh, it only has five words in the Latin, uh, but, you know, which is uh, uh, fata ducam voluntatem trahut in voluntatum, which means fate guides the willing person. The unwilling one, it drags behind it. And uh, so even when my son died, I just believed that you follow your destiny and you trust where it leads. And it's usually surprising. It's usually surprising. Yeah. Um, surely you must have had different opportunities come up at the time to, I don't know, say, make more money on a great book. Yeah. Or how did you, you think about that sort of thing? Well, when I left, when I announced that I was leaving General Foods, um, as vice president there, and it's, and it's a company where vice president is real. It's a very senior office. Uh, I had a, a agent that I happened to know socially. He was the agent for a couple of writers. I mm -hmm. He called me up and he announced, and this would have been in 1991, end of 1991. He said that a British put him and that he had put together a book deal for me. And he could offer me a six hundred thousand dollar advance to write a book about how MBAs were destroying American business, mm -hmm. uh, which is an idea I don't totally reject. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, that's a whole other discussion. Uh, and I'll, you know, I mean, I, you probably get big offers like that all the time. And this is being nineteen ninety one dollars, so it would be a million dollars. Yeah, that's a yeah, solid. Yeah, a million probably. dollars, just a little bit more. Uh, and I didn't say no. I said, well, I got to talk to my wife. But I told her, and she says, and she said, well, what do you want, do you want to do? It? And if I did, I felt like I could have secured my, you know, if I had done it, I could secure my, my future. But what I told her was this, and it sounds very corny, but I thought of Robert Frost, which is uh, about his poem about, about the road not taken. And, he, you know, the Stubbo is walking it down the road. It comes to a, a fork, and he takes one side. And he says, I'd like to go the other side, too, but... Knowing how way leads on to way, I doubt it I'd ever come back. And I, and I said, I said, well, it would be interesting. I could probably do it in 18 months. But I said, the trouble is if I do that, I didn't quit business to write about business. I'd rather actually do business than write about business, which is not any insult to people who write about business because I read their writing all the time. I read the Wall Street Journal every day. Um, I said, but then I'll have to do a book that gets an $800,000 advance. And then I'll have to get a book, and I'll not write the books that I want to write. And, I, and so I called the guy up the next day, and I said, I just don't want to do it. And he was flabbergasted, because he was a good guy. He liked me and everything else. And I just said, 
I just don't want to do it because it's not the book I want to write. And instead, I put together uh, Can Poetry Matter, which was a book of essays, and it sold very well by the standards of books of essays about poetry, which is, you know, one infinitesimal <laughs> fraction of what... But it was a book, and, and 30 years later, people still are buying and reading that book in small numbers. Please don't get me wrong on that. You know, I'm not, it's never been on the bestseller list, and it will be. But the book is still alive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the book on MBAs would not have been. It would have been a year afterwards. It would have been forgotten. Uh, we were talking uh, earlier, before the camera began, about a, um, a British writer of the 30s, 40s, and 50s named Cyril Connolly, who edited Horizon. And Connolly said that the challenge of a writer is to read a book, to write a book, which will still be read in 10 years. When I was first read that, I said, how silly people read books that are 2,000 years old. But I assure you as a writer, very few books are read 10 years after their publication. And so what I tried to do in my career was to write the books or the articles or the poems that only I can write, to take my time and to write them in a way that they stay alive for more than 10 years. I'm hoping, I think of myself, what, what would take this book to be alive in 50 years? Mm -hmm. In 50 years, I'll, you know, even in middle age, I'd be dead. So what, you know, to what, how can I write, write something that somebody in the next generation can read profitably? And Seneca sort of happened that way. And that means you just, you don't rush him and you go for a kind of perfectionism. Will the book pay your living? No way it will. It's just, you know, it's an abysmal economic investment, but what it does do is to create a life which will in its entirety support you. Mm -hmm. People will invite you to lecture, people will invite you to teach, people will uh, do you know, things because they, like the, they respect the, the imagination and the intelligence that writes that way. So, uh, so all of my advice to writers is bad advice. Nothing I recommend to people who get them an agent We'll get them a bestseller. Uh, but uh, working this way, I've been able to, to uh, write well, be well regarded, and make a living. And, you know, isn't that a, a, you know, a, a perfect trifecta? Right, right. Yeah, I suppose you can't, you can't always have all things. So yeah. uh, be careful about what you choose. No, it is. You... Well, even there's all these sorts of things. I mean, uh, Ray Bradbury, who I knew pretty well in his later years, used to say, jump off the cliff and build your wings on the way down. And I think that's really true. I mean, if you're determined to fly, that's the way to do it. <laughs> because you, you, the experience teaches you how to do it. Now, obviously, it's a metaphor, not a, uh, an engineering uh, idea. Sure, sure. But I, but I think it is true, you... Um, you you take the leap, you follow fortune, and you believe that fortune will guide you. Mm. So how does Seneca enter the picture? Well, you know, Seneca, this is a project that I've been involved with for probably a quarter of a century, but it really begins uh, when I started college. Mm -hmm. You know, I had uh, an old-fashioned Catholic education. Uh, they didn't... Uh, 
emphasize mathematics or science, but by God, they taught you Latin. Uh, because they wanted to make sure that if you're know, 18, when you graduated high school, you wanted to be a priest, you were prepared in theology or in philosophy and Latin. So I had, I had an extraordinarily good education for the 12th century. Uh, and, and having been raised in late middle age Los Angeles, you know, among <laughs> people that hadn't changed since the 12th century, it never questioned me that this was anything but the right education for the future. And indeed, ironically, uh, at the age of 72, uh, I use my Latin, my philosophy, and my theology every day. The computer languages that I learned, the statistical methods I learned, everything went to business school I don't use. Uh, so it is practical. But anyway, I came to college. I was, uh, they abolished Western Civ as a requirement. And I probably, if I'd, Western civilization had been required, I probably would have complained. But since it was abolished, uh, I decided to take it. Yeah, then you have you to know? take it. <laughs> so I mean, that's what I'm like. I'm just, I'm just a contrarian. So I, I started in this, I didn't know what the hell I was signing up for, but it struck me, it's a good idea to read Homer and Sophocles. Uh -huh. and so I did this, this class, and we spent like nine weeks on the Greeks. And then I came to the Romans, and they said, well, you know, Romans are just not as good as the Greeks, and we'll spend like a dandy, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, reading uh, uh, Santa goes by the day, meeting Cicero, and, and that, you know, that was it. They just said, well, you know, and I sort of said, gee, you know. So when I read Seneca, and they were giving his, his essays, I said, this is really good. You know, I, I, you know, I, you know I, I find this much more useful than reading Plato. Now, I know that's an abomination to say in the Department of uh, Philosophy, but Seneca was not interested in giving you uh, a, the abstract theoretical system for philosophy. Mm -hmm. What he was interested in doing was giving you a practical worldview that you could uh, apply. And when I was reading this, I said, you know, my Mexican and Sicilian families, the men are Stoics. This is the philosophy that they practice. And I never thought, I just thought of, this is what my uncles are like. This is what my grandfather's like. You know, I hadn't thought of it as a philosophical system. But anyway, I like it. And the rest of my education, I kept reading for Seneca to reappear. I took a, a two, you know, like a, a huge year-long class on the tragedy, taught by the head of the Spanish department. Mm -hmm. now, Seneca was born in Spain, for God's sakes, you know, when it was part of the Roman Empire. And we read Cassino, Carnet, we read all the Greeks, we read Tirso di Molina, we read, you know, read Lope de Vega, uh, you know, we read Shakespeare, we read Schiller. He didn't assign any Seneca. And it sort of puzzled me that, you know, that you wouldn't do it. And so finally, uh, graduate school, I didn't get it. Uh, and I, I was reading, I was doing work on Elizabethans, uh, just coursework. And I was actually, it was very important for me because I actually scanned every line of several plays because I wanted to teach myself as a poet how Shakespeare's contemporaries had written blank verse mm -hmm. uh, because it was a performative art. They were doing it for the theater. So they were doing it, by the way, they, it sounded. So I, I did that. And at the beginning of his book on Elizabethan drama, Eliot writes, uh, really was the, until the, my book, I think the last really great literary essay on Seneca. And I read it and I said, this is really fascinating. So about the time I dropped out of graduate school, I read a play of Seneca's. And see, now you gotta understand, the plays of Seneca are contemptible. They're vile, they're vulgar, 
badly written. They copy the Greeks too much, but they aren't enough like the Greeks. I mean, there's all these reasons to hate them. Nobody ever says a good thing, so I read it. I said, man, this is a hell of a play. It's the Thiestes, mm -hmm. you know, which is, uh, and it's, and it begins with a, uh, when a fury meets a ghost, and they're talking, it's almost like a no play of the Japanese, and I just thought it was wonderful. So I started reading these other plays of Seneca, and they, and I really liked them. So I, clearly I'm defective in the same way that Seneca, but the, the fact is that they're, you know, the Seneca plays are much more like um, the movies we have now. It's like, it reminds me of like Quentin Tarantino right. is pure Seneca, which is that these people like just come and just give speeches and the speeches are exciting. You know, you know I'm gonna blow this, this poor college kid drug dealer up but before I do, I'm going to give him this long speech. You know, you know or, and, and people, I remember being seeing Pulp Fiction, which I have problems with Pulp Fiction. I mean, I don't think it's the great, that great film the way my sons do. But by God, Tarantino was doing something nobody else did, which is having violence and rhetoric and poetry mm -hmm. together. And that's what Seneca is like. And these characters come and they just give you a speech to knock you out of your seat, and then they go off and murder somebody, you know. Uh, and so uh, I had a chance to do a version of this about 20 years ago. And so mm -hmm. I did a version and we, was, we produced it uh, in the lower Manhattan. And, uh, and this guy wanted, I used, to be, I used to go out drinking with this one. He comes sure. to poetry meetings afterwards we go to these bars. And it's a work night, it's 2 a.m. We're still in these damn bars and we're just talking about books. And I tell him about these things. I don't know how to put it on. He says, he says I'll pay to put it on. I said, how can you do it? You know, it's just, he says, I don't make that much money, but I spend it all. Why don't I spend this on? He decides that, uh, and I just saw this guy about a couple months ago. He moved back to the Bay Area, you know, and he, uh, he loved actors and he, and he kind of been in theater and stuff like that. So he brought together this group of actors. We did a semi-stage production of it, two nights in a pretty big place. We packed it. And, and, and I said, well, I don't want any of the actors to try to make this like a modern play. Right. I want this to feel ancient. I want it to feel foreign. And I want you to, to come on the stage and I want you to give these speeches to terrify the audience. Just belt it out, make it like opera. And we did it and the audience was like, whoa. And then they just got into it. And then, you know, it was over. I mean, it wasn't like we, you know, uh, I think we actually had enough gate and he was able to pay the actors just through the gate. So what he, you know, he, I didn't want to force him into financial ruin. He did that later on his own, but uh, he's Richard Ryan, great guy. Uh, and, uh, and so then uh, it was, a version of it was published in this uh, Johns Hopkins Roman drama series, which uh -huh. uh, was a disappointing venture in many ways. It was just uh, uh, the, uh, and, but I always said, I want to get back to this and I want to bring it out as an ideal thing. So I didn't do it for a number of years, but it was always in my list. This is what I wanted to do. So when I quit my job you know, after the fire, you know, you know, it's what as basically we were being a fire, I started working on it again. And so I took I took a, a shorter essay that I wrote and I rewrote it. I went through maybe 18, 20 drafts. And it got longer and longer and better and better. And I did it because I wanted to write an essay. Uh, that not only explained Seneca and explained Seneca's drama, but to a certain degree ex uh, expressed my outrage that this guy had been written out of the canon.
uh, and that he'd been so, uh, I think, willfully misunderstood. Uh, and then I took the translation and I just worked on it and worked on it because I wanted a translation uh, that when you heard it, you knew you were hearing poetry. Mm -hmm. And I had certain sections that I had before that you could actually just perform as a poem and people would go, wow, what a great poem. Uh, and, uh, and so that's what I brought out. So I, I think it's the first serious attempt to revive Seneca, you know, for, for about a hundred years. And the, the, it's the second, you know, uh, there's only been two translations of the play in the history of English. The first one was done by John Donne's uncle. That's how far back it is. Uh, Jasper Haywood, who was a Jesuit and also a, a sort of a Catholic spy, uh -huh. eventually. And he, he uh, did it for this, this edition of Seneca. Seneca was the first Latin, uh, first classical playwright to be translated in English. So Shakespeare would have read these translations. And in fact, we one of the few things we know about Shakespeare, because people were saying, well, doesn't that very good Latin or Greek? But one of them says, well, you know, Shakespeare in English, read by candlelight, produces, you know, uh, many good plays. And the guy was complimenting uh, Shakespeare. So it was that. And then the second one is a, was a kind of academic or translation, I think 1911, I think it was, something in the early part of the century, which was very, it wasn't trying to be poetic, it was just mm -hmm. trying to give you a, you know, a, and this guy actually also did trot, you know, to, you know which is a literal translation. Uh, so this is really the first attempt to make Shakespeare work as, make Seneca, Madness uh, Hercules, work as poetry um, since Shakespeare's time, actually a little bit before Shakespeare's time. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, it's up to you to let me know whether it's any good, but I, I gave it my all because I didn't, you know, because you're writing a you know, very play. It's very easy to say, well, yeah, this part of the play is not very good. I'll just right, right. I'll just, just... Kind of no. Why did he write it this way? And I tried to make I tried to make everything work. Now you could say not everything I did work, but but it's, it's because I failed. Mm -hmm. no, I didn't try, but I feel pretty proud of it yeah. because you get a sense of the power of the characters. Um, the actress who did the version in Soho is, uh, you know, kind of a very she's a very uh, powerful, she's good looking, but what you really noticed about her was just she was a powerful woman. And like all actresses in New York, she needed to work. And so after we did this, I said, you know, if I get a gig to read poetry, will you come and just do this? And so I would go to a poetry, a poetry reading and I would do some poems. She would come out and she'd do Juno's monologue, which is the entire first act of this play. Mm -hmm. And then I would do some more. And people loved it. This actress loved it because you know, she learned this part and now she got right, to, right. to use it. But I found that it was very dangerous because this is a crazy, uh, vengeance-ridden goddess who wants to, he's been trying to destroy Hercules since he was a baby. <laughs> she tried to destroy him in his cradle. And she's getting madder and crazier and nuttier. You know, and it's all vengeance. And afterwards, the w women in the audience would come up and say, uh, I really loved uh, that that thing that you did for Juno. She's so right about me. So right. <laughs> you know, you know, they say, whoa, you know, murder, let's not murder people. You know? But I felt a certain degree it was, it was a little like Quentin Tarantino. These are, these are wild and, and violent speeches, you know, and it makes sense within a drama. Sure, but, sure. You know, if you, if you 
uh, exert it, it's not a moral example. <laughs> no, right. you, you don't take the, that's not the character you should be basing the route for sure, Hercules. I mean, see, the thing about this play. Uh, I mean, well, let's give people a quick pricey about right. the play, because I think many, many listeners will be familiar with Seneca, but they may have taken a look at one of his plays, if, if any at all. And if you've done that, you probably will be surprised if you're familiar with his moral philosophy, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What do people know, what does the average person or average liter, you know, sort of literate person know about Hercules? Two things. He was the strongest person who ever lived. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, was, he had such incredible strength that he could, nothing could defeat him. And the second uh, thing is that through, you know, you know, one of his uh, irresponsible acts of violence, he had to make amends by doing 12 labors for King Eurystheus. And so the king kept sending him labors, hoping that he would die. Things like, they were all impossible labors. And so this play begins when Hercules has just finished his 12th and final labor which if you remember is to go into the underworld and bring back Cerberus, the three-headed dog. Mm -hmm. And so because of this triumph that he's done of you know, basically fighting every monster on earth, uh, Hercules uh, is going to be made into a god. And this is what just really annoys Juno because uh, Juno is the wife of, as you know, of Jupiter. You know, she's all Hera and Zeus would be their Greek names. And she's also, this is a little kinky, she's also Jupiter's sister. You know, they, you know, they're rather like, you know, some Very Egyptian royal families, they, they marry within the family. And Jupiter has not been a faithful husband. And she's been continuously humiliated by his, uh, his bastards, his mistresses. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Quite often, he rewards them by making them into stars, you know, de deifying them. So she's just, she's drawing the line of Hercules. So Hercules doesn't know this, but Juno is plotting to get him as he comes out of hell. So he comes in back to his native city and discovers it's, there's been a coup, uh, uh, this king has been killed, and the, the usurper uh, has given Hercules' wife an ultimatum that she either marries him or he will kill her, you know, her and all of Hercules' children. And uh, he doesn't, he thinks Hercules has perished in the underworld. Mm -hmm. and he's about to get a, a violent surprise. So Hercules uh, comes back to Thebes. He finds out the situation. He kills the usurper. Uh, but because, and this is, he gets into, uh, dark magic to a certain degree, that all mythologies have the gods above and the gods below, even Christianity. I'm a Catholic. We have the gods and what's below is the demonic portion of reality, uh, angels and demons, gods above and gods below. And what, uh, like Las Vegas, what's in Hades must stay in Hades. If you bring things out of Hades, you unleash dangers into the upper world. This has become uh, the plot of, I don't know how many horror films or TV series, sure, sure. but Seneca was there first, you know? And so Hercules does not understand that by dragging 
Cerberus, who is the sacred guardian of the underworld. He's unleashed all of these furies and and uh, e spirits. And that's what Juno uses uh, implicitly. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not, she talks about it, but you don't see it on the stage. Drives him mad. He goes mad and he kills his own family. And then he comes out of the madness. So it's the tragedy of, of Hercules Furis, which means Hercules gone mad, uh, is that the strongest man in the world who cannot be defeated uh, by going mad uses his strength to defeat himself. And so, uh, and so the, at the end of the play, he's basically being uh, taken off stage by King Theseus, who he's saved from the underworld to a place where he didn't redeem his life. And, uh, but as mythology shows, all of Hercules' greatest deeds are now for the most part behind him. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he has been a bad ending as uh, people know from mythology where he's tricked by a centaur, his wife's tricked by a centaur by putting on a, uh, you know, a poisonous shirt, I mean, which he cannot remove and has to, you know, find an elaborate way of killing himself. So this is really a tragedy of strength without judgment. Uh, but you can be the strongest person in the world, but if you do not control your anger, you do not control your vengeance, that strength cannot protect you or your family. Very sad. Right, right. So it's an exciting play. The interesting thing, the thing that I really loved about it, which was, uh, it drew me to it, is that the third act of this is a description of the underworld. Because Theseus has come up and mm -hmm. wants to know, well, what, what the heck, what is it, what's what next? Sell like, you know? And he tells them, and it's terrifying. And I am absolutely sure that Dante read this and it's reflected in Dante's Inferno. Uh, and people never talk about that. They always talk about his borrowing from Virgil and Homer. Mm -hmm. but this is something he, Dante would have known from, from school, school days on. And so uh, it's a wonderful, dark, poetic, violent play that's full of great poetry. So what's not to like? Yeah, I'm, I'm a guy from LA. I was raised by the movies, monster movies especially. A, a common criticism of uh, Seneca's plays is that they're crude or um, they spend too much time in the perverse uh, without anything to show. Like maybe one angle on this is you have the distinction between curiositas and studiositas where yeah. there's a sort of perverse curiosity in the gladiatorial games or the plays uh, perhaps of a gory nature. Um, as opposed to more serious uh, seeking. You know, how, how do you think about that? How do you sort of answer that general question? Do we like to read Jane Austen? Yeah, we do. Jane Austen, it reflects a kind of relatively tranquil part of British history. I mean, there's wars and slavery and everything in the background, but you know, it's, things are basically good in, in Jane Austen land. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, do we like to read The Master and Margarita by Bulgakov or Souls of Vincent or these things that Mandelstam, Monica, that come out of the Stalinist terror? And we do, because in our lives, there's peace, there's war, there's justice, there's injustice, there's democracy, there's totalitarianism. And it would be, I think it's a naivete to expect that somebody working at a court of Nero 
This is a Seneca. Um, you know, Virgil is born in the Roman Republic uh, and lives through the civil wars in mm -hmm. the time of, of Augustus. So he sees the Roman, the end of the Republic, he sees all the violence, the, the political chaos brings, and then he sees a great emperor who brings the Pax Romana, the peace, peace to Europe. And uh, Seneca is essentially raised under, you know, uh, Tiberius, Caligula, and uh, Claudius, and Nero. He has no memory of the Republic. What he's seen are increasingly bad, violent, and in some cases mad emperors. Uh, and he's struggling, and you see this in his essays, you certainly see it in the accounts of his life, and you see it most clearly in the tragedies. What do you do when you're living in a world where you could just be killed uh, but, you know, by the government the next day you know, without justice or you're tor could be tortured, you could be imprisoned, your family's in danger. And so it is the, Seneca is the acid test of Stoicism. Now, you say, well, Marcus Aurelius, but Marcus Aurelius is emperor. You know, now Seneca was essentially the prime minister. Seneca understood even as prime minister, you could be killed. And indeed he was, he was right. His whole family was killed, uh, you know, in a matter of about a week. Uh, in one week, uh, during the Pisonian conspiracy, this was a, a plot to kill Nero. Uh, Nero killed uh, Seneca. He killed Seneca's nephew, Lucan, who was the last great epic poet of Rome, who wrote the Versailles, about the, a poem about the civil wars. And he wrote, and he killed uh, Petronius Arbiter, the author of the Satyricon, the author of the, the first Roman novel. And so one week, uh, uh, Nero killed the three greatest writers of the era. And I would maintain, I've never seen anybody say this, and Roman literature never recovered. Because they killed the epic poet, they killed the dramatist, an essayist, and they killed the novelist satirist. And so they killed, you know, the three great traditions of Rome. Yeah. Uh, and the Seneca is in this world. He sees, you know, he sees the emperor kill his own mother. He sees the, the, uh, he sees Claudius's wife commit public bigamy. Uh, you know, and he sees all these bizarre things, you know, and, uh, and that's what he's writing out of. It's very different than Athenian democracy. And so I think, uh, Seneca is actually more relevant to contemporary readers in some ways than the, the Greek dramatists are. Because what he's writing from is an empire uh, gone dark. And, uh, you know, the, Ro the American Republic, like the Roman Republic, has become a kind of imperial power. You know, when I was in Washington, I was the chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, I would see the president and the vice president drive by with these vast motorcades of guards. It was imperial. This, this is not the republic that, that you, know, uh, you know, Jefferson or Adams or right. Madison, uh, you know, would have uh, envisioned. Now, you could say, well, they have to, and for all these various reasons, but we've, you know, we've become this imperial power that is... Uh, you know, for good, and I'm not anti-American. I'm not 
I don't think America is the greatest evil in the world. I really am not. But you have to notice, you know, uh, you know the, what we have. You know the, the the immense amount of state of state violence that we have, of international violence we have, the world. You know the terrorist world, the wars that were continue over these uh, external wars that were continuously involved. They're positively Roman, uh, and and that's what Seneca is writing about. Um, and uh, American entertainment has become darker and darker and darker. I mean. Seneca's a little like Jane Austen. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's right. right. Compared to, you know, to, you know, to Saw or something (laughs) like that, you know. Anyway, but I fell in love with Seneca as a writer. And I wanted to find a way of making it work. Mm -hmm. And the way you make it work is you translate his poetry as... As poetry. Not as, well, this is some kind of Roman rhetoric. I don't know what he's doing. I'd love to have you read some of... The Madness of Hercules. Yeah. Uh, uh, what I wanted to do in translating Seneca was to get um, what I felt was the excitement of these plays, which was in the language. You know, when people are criticizing Seneca, they criticize with so many words. You know, it's a little like Salieri and Amadeus. You know, you know, too many notes. The emperor, you know, you know. You know, uh, Joseph II. Too many notes. Too many notes. Um, the, but the fact is that what Seneca is doing is not like opera. The prima donna comes out there and she and she just dazzles you. So this play begins at night because you know a tragedy should take place in one location from the, from dawn to dusk. Uh, and uh, you know all the action has the unity of time uh, and place and you know uh, and action. You know, the play has you know, those three unities. So this Seneca sneaks a little bit. He starts before dawn, so it's night and all the stars are out. And this woman comes on stage. And she's the goddess Juno, and what she begins to do is to look at this zodiac. Uh, and point out that these stars, these constellations, are commemorating her husband's adulterous affairs, and she is not happy about it. So this is the way that it begins. Call me sister of the thunder god. That is the only title I have left. Once I was wife and queen to Jupiter, but now abandoned by his love and shamed by his perpetual adulteries. I leave my palace to its mistresses. Why not choose earth when heaven is a whorehouse? Even the zodiac has now become a pantheon of prostitutes and bastards. Look at Callisto shining in the north, that glittering slut now guards the Argive fleet. Or see how Taurus rises in the south, not only messenger of spring's warm nights, but the gross trophy of Europa's rape. Or count the stormy Pleiades, those nymphs who terrorize the waves, once warmed Jove's bed. Watch young Orion swagger with his sword, a vulgar upstart challenging the gods, while godding Perseus flaunts his golden stars. Gape at the constellations Jove awarded, Castor and Pollux, his twin bastard sons, 
And now not only Bacchus and his mother parade their ill-begotten rank in heaven, but my great husband, lord of lechery, discarding his last shred of decency, has crowned his drunken bastard slut with stars. Now you realize this is not a woman who's going to you know, be, have a charitable look uh, you know, at, you know, at anyone you know, who her husband's produced, but she just begins by this great rant of this woman mad at her cheating husband. And I'll tell you, I, you know, I know from having seen it perform, it still speaks very strongly uh, you know, uh, to women. But, she, but he, you know, she goes on, she rehearses uh, all of these things. She recapitulates uh, Hercules' labors. Uh, and she's trying to say, uh, how is she going to defeat him? And she realizes she's going to defeat him uh, by making him mad. So this strength turns to herself. And so, uh, and so at the very end, she's summoning up, because Hercules has unwittingly opened the underworld up. Uh, and so, the, you know, the, there's now uh, free transit you know, from these things. And she says, uh, and then she ends with a kind of spell. Now servants of the underworld begin. The fire of vengeance rage. Excuse me. Uh, now servants of the underworld begin. The fires of vengeance rage. Electo lead the hissing furies out of hell and let each loathsome goddess snatch a burning brand from the infernal pyre. Now on to work, revenge the desecration of the six. Uh, you know, and then you know, and she she gives this you know this you know, this spell, you know, and then she uh, then she goes whenever she gets incredibly mad, she pretends to be reasonable for a moment. Then she gets even vengeance. So she, Seneca doesn't create this rhetorical thing of anger, calm anger, calm anger, and to this kind of pyramid, you know, of anger, and where she's finally invoking the infernal spirits, and then she goes, and if. I have always been a good stepmother to my husband's gifted son. Today I'll make amends. I'll stand beside him when frenzy blurs his sight and help him send each arrow to its unsuspected mar. I'll be his staunchest ally in the fight, and when he finishes his giddy slaughter, I'll have him raise his dripping hands to Jove and ask for admission into heaven. I see the first dry, bright tracings of the dawn. The pine is set, and now I must be gone. She never reappears. Uh, and it's just, it's just this kind of great overture of vengeance uh, and violence. And so, uh, you know, and, I, and that's what I, I, you know, I tried to, uh, to do. The choruses I tried to do uh, you know, different thing where I, you know, I catch the mood of these things, and uh, you know, and it's uh, it's meant to be played. Uh, it's meant to work on stage. Right. Yeah. To to what extent do you think someone can understand it merely from reading? Well, I think it's I think it's very clear to be read. I mean, in order to read the play, you need to know the twelve labors of Hercules. You know, because they're referred to all the time, and you need to know the the uh, Roman and the adults, you know, Jupiter, mm -hmm. 
you don't, uh, you don't need much else. The breath is self-explanatory. When he goes into the underworld, he really gives a kind of guided tour. He, you know, he tells you how you get down there, each river you cross, what you come to. Right, right, right. And it's really, uh, so I, you know, I think it's actually a very accessible play. Now, the, the choruses are a little different because the way a Greek tragedy operates and the way Roman tragedy is, you have the action and then you have um, the chorus commenting on it. And so the, chor the choral odes are sort of poems that, that separate the acts. And so those uh, can be a little more difficult, but uh, that's why I tried to make them, uh, you know, uh, more, you know, you know uh, I try to make them clearer and I try to make them musical. I did each of them in rhyme uh, and, uh, you know, the, uh, and I changed the meter so that they, you know, they, they, you capture the mood. I mean, in, you know, in, in one case, it begins with a very gloomy thing, but then the chorus sees that Hercules has, you know, come out of hell. And so they figure that things are all right. So they shift meter. And he in Thebes is kind of the joyful day. On each high altar, we will slay our choicest sacrificial beast. Now to prepare the lavish feast, summon the workers from the field and taste the fruits their labors yield. I don't think that's typical poetry. Right, right. But, you know, it's a, a lot of times when you see Porus is translated, they're translating this musical Latin into uh, obscure prose. And what you got to do is got to figure the tune and deliver the tune because most of what poetry communicates is by rhythm and sound. Yeah, that's right. So I try to bring that across. But I think actually, uh, I think the play plays pretty well. I mean, if you don't know who Hercules is and you don't uh, don't know at least a few of the labors and you don't know who Jupiter and Juno are, you are in trouble because you know it's. Uh, but you know, but it's basically there's, you know, Jupiter above, Pluto below, Juno who's mad at everybody. And Hercules. That's the extent that the Olympian uh, pantheon really is, you know, is called into question. Uh, the opening, the opening thing talks about the the zodiac, but actually anybody who's interested in astrology or astronomy probably knows all of those. Right. You know, you know who the Pleiades are, and you know who Taurus is, and things like that. So, uh, curious is so since so much of our culture was codified in Rome, you know the. Our months are named, you know, some of our months are named after, you know, we, have, we have two months named after Roman emperors, you know, uh, you know, July and August, uh, you know, and we have these, you know, we have our planets are named after the uh, Roman, they're not unfamiliar names. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose uh, it's certainly comprehensible, but there's, I suppose there's a question that comes to mind, which is if you merely read the piece to, you know, do yep. you, or do you need to embody it? in order yeah, to get yeah. that extra, uh, you know, amount of dramatic knowledge or embodied knowledge. Well, I agree, yeah, play should be seen, or, or you could hurt, you know, I, mean, I actually have a, some, got a CD set of all Shakespeare's plays, and others don't all, I'll drive someplace, mm -hmm. with my, my wife doesn't like here, my kids don't like here, but if I'm by myself, I actually enjoy listening to Midsummer Night's Dream, or, mm -hmm. you know, Time of Athens, or something like this, because I don't have a chance to see these things, but it's because I've seen them, Mm -hmm. that I can, I can register. But, you know, a, a play should be seen. But when I was young, um, I, mean, I, I, didn't, I couldn't go to the theater. I didn't want to go to the theater. There was not that much theater in Los Angeles. And so a lot of times I, I would just read a play at night. And so I read a lot of famous plays. 
And I said, I talked about my, I over there, had, we talked, did the break about a science fiction writer, I know, Tom, uh, Thomas Dish. Some people will know some of his novels like Cam Concentration or even, you know, one of his kids' books, uh, The Brave Little Toaster. And, uh, but Tom was the same way. When he was young, he would read plays. We talked about, you know, we read all of Tennessee Williams' plays and we read these. And a lot of these I've still never seen, but I know from having read. So uh, until people put on Santa go, reading in the book is probably the best you could do. What I'd love to do is to do another semi-staged reading and record it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think, I think it, it, it works well. And the actors, I, I try to make the voice of each of the characters somewhat different. You know, Lycus, who is the fellow who serves the government, you know, I made him sound like a Southern politician. You know, I mean, just it's reasonable, calm, and he's, you know, uh, always trying to strike a deal. You know, and so the, you know, because you have to sort of differentiate the actors. But I, you know, I did, uh, I kept the best I could. Uh, and I'm hoping somebody will read it and say, gee, I'd like to, uh, to produce it. Which is why at the end of the thing, I, I put suggestions for production. You know, because uh, in case somebody wants to do it, I, I, talk, I have a little note called the translator's note. Um, and then I just you know, say, uh, to a director wishing to mount the play, I have put the following suggestions. We're going to talk about the acting style. Right, I right. talk about how you do the chorus. I talk about uh, how you make cuts. Uh, and uh, I, somebody will do it. I think so. I hope so. That'd no, be fantastic. It'd be crazy. <laughs> My friend Richard Ryan, who did his first production, uh, probably because we were both, you know. See, there's certain times when you, if you drink enough, certain projects seem plausible. It wouldn't seem plausible if you were sober. Uh, and the funny thing is that they often work, you know, because it removes your inhibitions and, and you do it. So, you know, when you drink, don't get in a car, but do produce a play. Right, right. You also have the line, you know, as a philosopher, I think, or maybe Herodotus says this about the Persians, where they would consider an idea sober and then it would also, also be crucial to yeah. see how it passes when. Well, you do, you know, it's, you know you could, next morning when you wake up. But we did say, I, years ago, I created a writer's conference. Um, a friend of mine and I were at my parents' house in Sebastopol, and we had a bottle of uh, Pinot Noir. And uh, we began drinking it. And we talked about how, you know, there's 2,500 writer's conferences in the United States, but there's not one that you could go to and learn how to write in meter, uh, have anybody critique about your use of rhyme or mm-hmm. doing verse narrative. And we thought it would be nice to have a conference that actually taught the traditional techniques of poetry by poets who use them. And so, and so by the time we finished the bottle of wine, we did it, and everyone told us we were crazy. We didn't have a budget, we didn't have a staff, anything, but we did it. Uh, and I just did it by sheer force of will and persuasion. And four years later, we were the largest poetry conference in the United States because we were doing something different from everyone else. And we were trying to do it really well and to create an atmosphere that when young writers came, we treated people as equals. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a, 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 a positive, kind of respectful, fun atmosphere. Uh, and, you know, we, we ran it for 20, you know, some years I had to move on when the 
the two founders left, it sort of faltered because sure, people sure. didn't keep it on strategy. But as long as you kept, you know, you kept it on strategy, you know, we you had you know more people than we could deal with almost. Yeah. So you know, so I'm all for divine, the divine madness. It's like Spock's <laughs> dimension and other Roman the pantheon. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about how you see this play fitting in with Seneca's philosophy. We've touched on it some, but is there well, a general know, theory you have about this? Well, there's a, there has been an argument among classicists saying that, well, the person who wrote these plays and the person who wrote Seneca's essays are two different people. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I don't take that argument very seriously. And the reason I don't is that uh, pretty much everything that there was to know about classical literature was known by 1900. The texts were established, uh, except for a couple of fragments of of, uh, of Sappho and um, uh, of, you know a uh, of a little Greek you know you know a comedy of Menander. You know, there's been no new texts, and so since the texts are there, they've been edited, they've been annotated. About all you could do is then challenge what the consensus is. So you have to, anything anybody says, you have to challenge. And so I, I think to a certain degree, the, the argument that Seneca tragicus was not, you know, uh, Seneca, you know, uh, philosophus is, uh, is a hollow one. I think it's a, I think it's a rhetorical argument. Uh, you know, you, you could publish an article on it. And why now Seneca's essays are very, clean, very concise. The tragedies are grandiose and violent <laughs> and everything else. But I think it's, you know, if I uh, take a writer and I have him write an essay and then I have him write a novel, you get two different sides of their personality. And, so, and I think that when, well, I don't think I know, when, when Seneca is writing essays, he's writing in his own person. <laughs> he's saying, I am an, I am an example of Roman Stoicism, and I will set a good example for you, my friend. So he's writing an S, he's writing a letter to somebody, but the letter is a letter that you're supposed to then come and read to all your friends. I mean, so Seneca is writing letters to posterity, really, to all Roman, to, to posterity. In the plays, he has the luxury of putting words into the mouths of fictional characters. So he can have uh, Hercules, or he can have Medea, you know, uh, uh, or Juno say things that he could never say in his first person. And so I believe that Seneca used his plays to reflect uh, his anxiety, anger, uh, and... Uh, suppressed violence about his sense of what life had become in Imperial Rome. And I think they're vehicles for all of these darker emotions, which as a Stoic, he knew he must control in his life. And so, you know, you think of Edgar Allan Poe as a very meek, you know, uh, very polite man. He drank a lot, but the stories are violent and crazy. He, he channeled this. And you see this again and again, that the H.P. Lovecrafts, of the world are very mild-mannered, polite people. Their imagination kind of goes wild. So I think, for, you know, for Seneca, this became an, uh, an, a, a form in which he could 
channel his darker energy uh, and his darker vision, you know, free of the weight of being an exemplary Stoic. Now, does that, does that mean that the plays contradict uh, his Stoic philosophy? No, they show the consequences of immoderate behavior. They show the consequences of not controlling your darker passions because they are tragedies. You know, they are about great people who come to bad ends uh, because of essential flaws in their character. So it's a, it's a dramatization of uh, Seneca, of Stoic principles. Absolutely. Uh, and, I, and I think it's, uh, they are, they're more expansive uh, and flamboyant than, uh, than the Greek plays. And what Seneca reminds me of are, is opera and movies. You know, the way that opera, you know, time stops and Violetta makes you feel what's going on in her heart. And you have this tremendous emotional transference. And, I, and that's what I saw operating in the, when we did the stage production. That's why I said, don't try to do realistic uh, drama where, you know, you do this and you walk over here and you pour a glass of water and you light a cigarette. Just go there and be... Uh, Maria Callas breaking the audience's heart. And people have this emotional transference. And the other thing is that they have this kind of uh, inevitable violence. There's a wonderful scene in uh, is it, uh, a, a version of Antigone that was written after World War II by Gérée de and it begins when the, the chorus comes out and says, here's Antigone. She's just a girl. Mm -hmm. she, you know, she dreams of marriage. She dreams of this. But the machine of tragedy has been turned on. And once this machine has been turned on, it's, it cannot be stopped. And that's what Seneca's doing, is that before the play opens up, you know, Juno has put into effect this this tragic tidal wave. And until that wave lands and crushes everything in its path, you know, the, the action isn't over. And so, and you know what's going to happen. You know, the tragedy is not about surprise. It's about uh, witnessing what do strong people do when they are pushed to the outer extremities of human suffering. When they, uh, when the worst things in the world happen to them and they still uh, resist breaking, uh, but they have to articulate their suffering. And, uh, and it's a very strange art form in that respect because you know what they're doing is something that nobody wants to see and yet we're drawn to. It's like a traffic accident. Right. You, people always slow down because they want to see the accident. Uh, you know, they, you know, there's a crime scene. They want to see, there's a, there's a desire in a sense to see the worst fates that we might uh, encounter. And uh, that's in the Greek tragedies, but here, you know, it's, it's on an imperial level. And Rome is bigger production, yeah. bigger budget, wider screen, and technicolor. <laughs> One thing that was just brought to mind was 
Seneca in On Anger talks about how anger is not merely an immediate reaction. Lots of people react to something out of frustration, but anger is the madness that sort of takes over when that initial impression, the Stoics would say, is agreed to, you sent to that initial impression and become angry, become mad. And uh, you know, you're just saying that the play sort of takes on at that very point where reason has left and all there is is different forms of anger. Well, it's, what's interesting about Seneca is this notion and he, you see it in the letters, but you see it throughout the tragedies that, you know, there's a kind of, of pollution that happens to you when you uh, indulge your darker emotions. And I think we see it in life that there's a kind of, you do it, then you sort of acclimatize yourself then, and it grows and grows until there's a point where you no longer are controlled. Or like Juno, at some level, Juno is not even conscious of how evil she is mm-hmm. you know because uh, she she the anger allows her to justify her cruelty her her, her rationality uh, and then it's carried on at a magic level or a, a mythic level and that merely emerging immersing yourself in the underworld you can't get the stain off you know when you leave and I think that's a rather profound psychological point that the uh, the actions that we take uh, change us in ways that we eventually uh, can no longer detect or control, and that we have to, in a sense, uh, understand where we're going. And that's the the interesting thing about setting on anger is that you uh, you just stop and you. Uh, it's almost you sleep on it, and 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 you see that by the next day, so much of your motivation was irrational and has dissipated, uh, and it would have been uh, self-destructive. I mean, how many people that we're talking to have said an email that they regretted five minutes later? You know, you you know, you really should just if you have to vent it, write it, but don't send it for an hour. And chances are you'll delete it or you'll revise it. And so, you know, and, and so it's really about controlling your emotions. I mean, with Seneca, in some ways, it's very simple. It's that you can't control the world. All you can control is your reaction to it. You know, it's, uh, and it's a little like alcoholic anonymous. You know, is that you accept what you can't, you know, control and you work with what you can. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a, in general, my impression at 18, reading Seneca for the first time, remains my impression at 72. Uh, his philosophy makes a lot of sense. That Stoicism uh, represents a very practical, effective uh, set of values by which to lead your life. We have more control over our lives than Romans uh, did. I mean, you know, uh, a Roman who survived infancy probably could look forward to living about 30 years on the average. You know, we can look forward to living nearly 80 years. Uh, and so we have, you know, uh, more time to enjoy, more time to make mistakes. 
and uh, I, I love one of Seneca's remarks, which is that he says that no life is too short. Uh-huh. Uh, and, but he also says it's not that life is short, but that we waste so much of it. And I, and I think that that's uh, uh, you know, part of the, the, the energy of Stoicism. If you accept the inevitability of mortality, uh, your, your choice is basically to drift there or to use every moment until then as wisely as possible. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's the way that St. Jerome, who was a great fan of Seneca's, kept a skull on his desk, his memento mori, so that he, at every moment he was reminded he would die and then not to waste his life. You know, it's, it's interesting to me, uh, and I happen to sit on next to a uh, famous psychologist on an airplane about a month ago, and we were talking, and uh, she asked me, you know, was I happy, and I said, and all these questions, and she just, and I, I knew that they were kind of standard questions, and, and her field was, how does your, how does your age and your part of life affect your happiness? And I said, well, you know, in my seventies, I was much, I'm much happier than I was as a young man. And she said, what was your worst year? I said, probably when I was about fifty. And she, and she says, you know, you're right. It's exactly. But I think part of it is that you, if you make it to my age, and unfortunately some of my dearest friends did not make it to my age, either through bad luck or bad behavior, uh, you don't take anything for granted. You, uh, you, you just, every day seems more of a gift and you enjoy things. And, and, and I think my wife and I are both slightly astonished uh, at the joy that we have in our life. But I think it comes from, from approaching life from a, a stance of gratitude. I don't, I was so busy struggling mm-hmm. with life, struggling with destiny, struggling with all these things when I was young that, you know, I didn't have gratitude. I didn't, you know, I didn't have any ease in things. This was a bad, you know, existence was a battle. Uh, and, uh, you know, and you, you realize that, you know, that, uh, you know, the, the thing that I, uh, like what before that, you, you, you have to let your, your life guide you. You have to go with the current of your life. Uh, and it, will you, you know, if you're, if you're skillful enough, it'll take you where you need to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I do think that stoicism for not with if people know it, but have, Outside, they have a sense that stoicism is some kind of test about how much pain you can endure. Maybe they read Madness of Hercules, um, but it isn't. It's really about putting yourself in an attitude towards life that you don't worry about uh, too much about the things you can't control, and you uh, are grateful for those things that you have. And it's not a bad, you know, I was raised by people that have very hard lives. Uh, were relatively poor, uh, were always working hard, and they were joyful. Mm-hmm. They, uh, you know, they, they, you know, they uh, took joy in things that nowadays people I don't think appreciate as, as much in, 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 in marriage, in family, in relations, in uh, the holidays, the, the few holidays they were given from their work, but they didn't waste those things. All right. Yeah, Epictetus has a line about treating everything 
you have as if it's on loan from fate. Which it, Which it is. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's like a comment about beer. You don't buy beer, you, you rent it. But that's the thing about existence. You know, you, you know, you, uh, and even if you believe in eternal life, you'll never be 20 again. You'll never be 30 again. You'll never have a newborn child again. You know, you'll never, uh, you know, you're about to get married. You'll never, uh, you know, in a sense, you know, uh, merge your life with somebody else and, in a celebration of, you know, of marriage. These moments that come, and if you don't, if you don't seize the day, the day doesn't come again. Another day comes, but it's, but it's different. And uh, I, this poem I wrote that, that again, it's called The Row, it goes, he sometimes thought that he had missed his life by being far too busy looking for it. Uh, searching the distance, he often turned to find that he had passed some milestone unaware. And I think that's the way a lot of people, especially very successful men. And I don't, you know, maybe people don't agree. I think Stoicism is more a male philosophy uh, in a than traditional sense, about people who have to go out and struggle with the world, people who may face uh, uh, military uh, conscription, people who, you know, are given, you know, the, you know difficult, uh, you know, uh, work in which they really only have the, the eternal resources of their own individuality to face, mm -hmm. you know, versus but the traditional Roman sense of uh, uh, female role, which is, which has, you know, which is this creation of a home with this, you know, uh, this uh, web of, of family relations that helps support you. Uh, but, you know, you know, I, I, you know, I find it a, a a, a joyful and realistic stance, uh, which I think is uh, completely compatible with my Catholicism. and comes very naturally out of my Mexican and my Italian heritage. Yeah, I do think um, many modern Stoics underrate the importance of gratitude, as you mentioned earlier, in the philosophy. You know, Marcus Aurelius, his first book of the meditations, is a long list of people who have helped him. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a kind of militant uh, uh, undercurrent of a lot of, you know, sort of, of the new Stoics, you know, and I think it's, they feel embattled by society and they feel they have to fight their way uh, into being able to articulate and, and express themselves. And, and, maybe the, and, and this is probably an authentic uh, reaction from their personal circumstances. But as somebody who's like on the other side of that, you know, towards, um, towards the end of my life, uh, you know, I, uh, I think that to be open to the grace of existence uh, and, to, be, and uh, to approach life from an uh, aspect of gratitude uh, is an extraordinary, it's a secret to happiness. Uh, and uh, you know, so rather than arguing about what you have and what you didn't have and what you missed in this out of the other, you start with what you have and, you, and you're thankful for it. Uh, anybody's had a serious accident. Let's say you, you can't walk for a couple of months, and then you walk again. <laughs> walk is what a gift, mm -hmm. you know. You, you know you can't. You know you are you. Let's say you go through some financial distress, and this having a little bit of money just to be able to indulge yourself becomes this extraordinary gift. Or if you've been separated from people for a long time, and you, you know, you come back, you, you know, to your family or whatever. 
And so I think we take so much for granted, uh, especially in our society now, because we're given so much. So people are, are given so much, they don't even have a chance to enjoy it. Uh, and I think stoicism, which is, uh, which is moderate what you have so that you enjoy what you get. Mm-hmm. Not bad advice. Yeah, no, be moderate, nothing in ac- excess. Because you think of Roman society in the West, maybe Persians, maybe like this, with the first society of luxury and excess, where people, because of the extent of the empire and the wealth of the empire, the people, especially the ruling caste of Rome, had fantastic material wealth compared to what had had been had sure. earlier, yeah, yeah. earlier eras. And when you look at the palaces and things like that, they're even by today's standards, they're rather extraordinary. And you know, there's a kind of drunkenness that that can give you. You see it in the United States, you know, where you just, mm-hmm. people are so, uh, I should talk for all the books I've got. I, I'm the poster boy for, for you know, bibliomatic excess. Uh, but except for my books, I'm, you know, I think I, I, I'm not fairly, not a Spartan, but I'm, you know, certainly stoic mm-hmm. in my appetites. Um, you know, that, you know, you, People are just busy getting stuff and more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. And I think it's a kind of delusion as if having uh, more is going to make you, make you happy. You know, then uh, anyway, but it's, uh, I'm bloviating. Well, that brings to mind the contemporary of Seneca, Musonius Rufus. He always castigates his students for living in luxury. And, you know, one of the things that came to mind the other day is, you know, today, the typical person probably has about as much energy at their disposal as a Roman with 200 slaves or something like this <laughs> is the sort of thing yeah. that people estimate. So he, he would be much harsher even on the typical person, perhaps. I, my wife and I uh, do a s- serious fast during Lent and uh, during Advent. And we, you know, we simply... We cut back. We cut all these things out of our diet. We you know, eat less, and uh, it's clarifying. But first of all, you, you know, you, I think I lost about ten pounds. Uh, but you, you, you become conscious of your appetites that you're so busy satisfying, you almost forget. You know, and hunger is a very clarifying and actually energizing uh, physical impulse, and. Uh, and so I, you know, I found that that uh, it was uh, there was a kind of joy mm-hmm. in in fasting. There's a and I, you know, I think there's in our culture that pleasure is often found in people that are doing bodybuilding or jogging or whatever, where they have a kind of uh, a spiritual discipline that is expressed in. Uh, physical exhaustion, you know, physical transformation, and I and I think that that's very sound. I do think it's it's a a, a diminishment if you're doing it for your body, but not for your emotions, your mind, your imagination. Uh, there is, I think, uh, a great shortcoming of American education and American culture. Uh, in that we don't know how to educate our emotions. And certainly that's the main message, I think, of stoicism. You know, it's, it's not saying, you know, uh, 
giving you an intellectual uh, regimen. It's not giving you a physical regimen, though he recommends things in both regards. But what, what Seneca and the Stoics are saying is that achieving a kind of emotional perspective and maturity uh, is the key to managing everything else in your life. Uh, and I do think if you look at, at American education, the the emotional component is almost blank. They, they have rules, they have punishments, but they don't know if it says how to, especially the boys, they don't think that they know how to take all the natural impulses and, and to cultivate and refine them to be productive rather than destructive. And, you know, and what great civilizations do is to take these, all this potentially destructive energy and turn it into positive energy, positive, uh, uh, out towards positive outcomes. Yeah. Uh, that is in some ways the benefit of arts education, which, you know, the, in my own argument of why I think Seneca wrote his plays, it allows you to channel uh, the energies towards productive means. And I'll give you an example that I learned in band. Uh, my high school in Los Angeles was not a particularly distinguished high school. It was an all-boys Catholic school. And the brothers' main objective, I think, was to keep us from going to reform school because it was in a rough neighborhood. And, and in fact, a lot of, you know, a lot of, of, of the guys there were getting into trouble. Uh, but we did have the best band in the Southern California, the Metro Los Angeles area, which is quite a distinction. Mm -hmm. And it was just the, the accident of having some very good band masters. And so I went into this thing and it was really, it was serious music uh, in the way that a lot of bad school had a serious uh, a sports program. In fact, my high school, long after I left it, produced the best football team in, you know, of any high school in size in California. Now, what I learned in band was band was full of young men that were potential criminals. They were explosive, they were violent, they were intemperate. Uh, but you give them some drums to beat, you give them a trombone to play, and they sort of put the energy into that. I mean, they would make rude noises, the breaks and things like that. But what it did is that it gave them the channel and then like a sports team, it had them play together. Uh, and they learned in a sense to focus their energy and to work for a kind of collective positive outcome. And in a very subtle way, what, and what, what was the way it was, was beauty. The beauty of the music they mm -hmm. were creating, which was intoxicating to the people performing. If you're performing music and it's working, you feel it, 10 times as deeply as the audience does. It becomes transfiguring. But it, it was a way of controlling and channeling your emotions and working for the outcome way down the road with these rude noises that you make when you begin uh, turn into melody, turn into harmony. And I do think that you know, if you took young people and you put them in theater, you put them in band, uh, you put them in many debates, just as, as as putting him in football or basketball or baseball, uh, you 
you educate and refine their emotions in ways you can't do otherwise. Otherwise, you meant it's suppressing them. You're yelling at them. You're forbidding them things, which is channeling it. Uh, and so I was lucky in, in that respect. Uh, and I, I see this even when I was teaching at USC. I had musicians. I taught most, whenever possible, I taught in the school, the Thorpe School of Music. I had musicians who, uh, versus the scholars and the scientists, you know, were completely different human beings. But they'd, but they'd found in, in music a way of developing and expressing uh, their personality, uh, their intelligence. And their intelligence was not probably, you know, often the intelligence that was analytical or sport numerical in any way. It was a kind of an, uh, an expressive intelligence uh, in very productive ways. And the difference between the poets and the musicians, which is why the musicians were happier, is they were the artists that quite literally played together uh -huh. versus the people that saw themselves as loners, as, as being alienated from one another, and who's, who began in a sense to cultivate their own unhappiness, uh -huh. which I think is a temptation for an artist or an intellectual, uh -huh. a kind of self-righteous cultivation of your superiority that since the world doesn't see can only be expressed through your, your resentments and anxiety and unhappiness. Uh, but I, I think it's not a bad thing for an artist to be happy. Yeah, I'd say that for people in general. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? This would be well, fantastic. I, thank you for putting up with me. I'm, I'm, you know, I just go on and on and on. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's been a, it's been, uh, a, a surprise and a reward for me to discover your community if I could call it that, which is this movement of, of new Stoics, of these young people that are in very different ways are, you know, going back to classical uh, ideas and Stoic ideas in particular. And, uh, and you give me hope for intellectual life because almost in every case you're working outside of the university. You have the benefits of an academic training but you, for whatever reasons, declined to be uh, circumscribed by academic life. You're, you're living in the broader world, but you're holding on to your education and, and you're sharing it through books, through podcasts, uh, you know, through uh, coaching. And I think that is of enormous significance uh, to our future. And so, you know, I... I'm grateful to discover you, and, and I'm grateful for any attention that you, you throw my way. Glad to hear it. Thanks so much. Okay. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletter.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. 
send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.